So tomorrow starts a brand new church year as far as uh, new church officers, uh, new budget year, uh, people begin a new year. When you begin a new year, new school year's coming, we're going to be in our buildings in a couple of months. It's good just to step back and to take an inventory of your lives and of your church and what you're about. And so for the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about uh, repentance, a life of repentance, and then the church out of Acts chapter 2 especially. But repentance is uh, something that's incredibly important. This is an election year, and you're going to have people stand up, and they're going to read a passage out of the Old Testament, the Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7 and verse 14 where Solomon dedicates the temple and they're worshiping the Lord and the Lord says this to his people. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And you're going to have some very well-meaning people who are not doing justice to the scripture, say this is God's statement to the United States of America. That's not true. This is God's promise to the church, to his covenant people. It's not a statement to a national entity. It's a promise to the people of God. If my people who are called by my name, the people of God, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. It's a promise to the church. So what he's saying is be people who repent. When Martin Luther, almost 500 years ago now, started the Reformation, he nailed 95 theses on a church door in Germany and the first thesis said this, when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And the Westminster Confession, almost 100 years later, helped us cobble out what repentance looks like when it said this, in essence, that repentance involves understanding the danger and the filth and the odious nature of sin, coupled with a view of the mercy and goodness and joy and glory found in Christ. When I, when I see those things, I so hate and grieve over my sin that I turn from sin and I run to Abba Father. So I see the danger and the filth and the odious nature of sin and the sweetness and the mercy and the goodness and the passion and the glory of Christ. And I so grieve for and I hate my sin that I turn from my sin that brings death and destruction and I run to the arms of Abba Father. And we repent continuously as believers. See, when I repent, I, I repeatedly tap into the joy of my union with Christ in order to weaken my need to do that which keeps me from crying with all of my heart, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I continually tap into the resource of the joy that's found in Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul glories in the reality of the cross, and he says in Romans chapter 5, for example, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, justified by faith, by the work of the cross. And then he says in verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And then you go to chapter 6 and he says this, 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And you died in Christ. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to the Lord. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And then he says this, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions and its ways. And, and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. And later in the chapter, he says in verse 16, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either to, of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you have, you who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So as he says, understand that you're in Christ. You have union with Christ and you're to walk in Christ. You're to, you're to present yourself to the living God. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your immortal body. Tim Keller helps us understand this. He says this, that repentance is the pervasive and it's all of life. All of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Now, I, I, I read these things and I look at my life and I, I say, am I a repenting man? And repentance is something I do until I die because I'm never done with sin. Nobody is. I love the Psalms because the Psalms just cries out the existential, empathetic life of a man or men who, who walked and gloried and struggled. And it's just, they're just honest. Psalm 32, David's talking about the blessedness of a man whose sins are forgiven. The happiness of a man whose transgressions are covered Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he says this by way of biographical overview. He says, you know, when I, when I was silent about my sin, my bones wasted away as in through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then he says, Selah, or stop and think about that. Ponder it. David says, when I, when I didn't confess and forsake and run from my sin, the hand of the Father was upon me, and my strength was dried up and sapped as a man living in the heat of summer. That's what sin does. Sin destroys your vitality. It destroys your energy. It destroys your focus if you're a child of God. Thursday, I got up and worked out. It's the 27th. I work out on the 27th of every month. That's the day I work out. So I worked out, sweated a lot, or excuse me, perspired a lot. Went home, my day off. About 10 o'clock, I said, I'm going to work in the yard. So I went out and worked in the yard for about three and hours. You know, I mowed the yard and edged and did, did stuff. And I did a good job because my wife said, good job. But after three hours in the yard, man, my, my, my clothes were wringing wet. I mean, it was horrible. It's just hot. It's just, it's Charleston. It's Ju if you're listening to this tape, it's, this is July the 31st. It's Charleston. It is steamy hot. And so I came and took a shower. And the rest of the day, I was just kind of on edge. 
I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to, I was just kind of, just kind of a sour mood. And at the end of the day, I said, what is going on? And part of it, I, I didn't hydrate myself. Part of it, I'm, I'm just a sinner at times, but frequently. But, but really, I, I stood back and said, your strength was sapped. Your strength just, you, you just, you're, you're not used to being out in the sun like that for three and four hours. Your strength was sapped. See, that's what sin does. When you don't deal with sin and confess it and run from it to the Father, your, your strength, and you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit now, your strength is sapped. When I talk to men, I always, or I frequently mention 1 Peter 3, verse 7 in the New Testament, where Peter says just one little verse to men. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding fashion as with the physically weaker partner and as a co-heir of the grace of God so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He says, he says men, don't ever use your brute strength to manipulate your wife. That is ungodly, it is unseemly, and it's from the pit of hell. You live with your wife in an understanding fashion as with a physical weaker partner and the co-heir of the grace of God so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let me tell you something. When I am at odds with my wife, it's not that God doesn't hear my prayers. I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray because I'm out of sorts. God's hand is upon me. And that's the way sin is, whether it's with this person or that person or this issue. God's hand is upon you. You have the Holy Spirit. You're miserable. And, and so, so repentance is seeing the depth and the horror of sin and the sweetness of life in Christ and being so aware of, and so you grieve over the sin, you turn from it, and you run to Abba Father. And, and so that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be, supposed to be people of known repentance. So in repentance, I see the destructive nature of sin. I see the fact that I am never done with sin. I have ongoing issues in my life. And I see that in Christ there's healing and there's hope and there's harmony and there's joy. And I want to run to that. Psalm 27, the psalmist says this. He says, the Lord is my strength and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to eat my flesh and my adversaries and my foes, uh, rise up against me, they will stumble and fall. If an army camps against me, they can't get me. Why? He says this, because one thing I've asked of the Lord, and this is what I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will lift me high upon a rock. See, the psalmist says, you know, army can't get to me. My foes can't get to me. Evil men can't get to me because I've made the living God my refuge. And I look to him and I see the joy and the glory and the brightness of God. And there's healing and there's harmony and there's hope in the presence of the triune God. Reading Mark, it came to Mark chapter 6. And the last verse in Mark chapter 6 it's easy to just run by it. But in Mark chapter 6, it says this. Verse 56, and, and whenever Jesus came in villages or cities or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And I just stopped and I said to myself, I said, self. There is healing and harmony and hope 
in the presence of Jesus. And repentance is seeing the horrid nature of sin and the hope and the harmony and the healing that's in Jesus. And you grieve and you hate over your sin and you run to the Father. And see, I, 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 I've, I've, got to, I've got to do that. There's a little book in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader has an opening line that is probably one of the best open lines of any book I've ever read. It says this, there was once a little boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and Eustace Clarence Scrub was a, a know-it-all spoiled brat that tormented his friends. And one day, Eustace Clarence Scrub and some children were transported to the magical kingdom of Narnia. And Eustace Clarence Scrub was so eaten up with himself and so haughty and so arrogant that he became a dragon. And after he'd been a dragon for a while, Eustace did not like being a dragon. He didn't want to be undragon, and so he started helping people instead of hindering them. And everybody loved this friendly dragon, but they didn't know it was Eustace Clarence Scrub until later. And one day Eustace is by a pool of water and he's grieving over being a dragon and he wants to be undragon to become a little boy again. And he says, I'm going to start peeling away my scales and maybe a little boy will pop out. And so he starts pouring, pulling at him and the, and the scales fell off and, and one whole set of scales and he did it again and another set fell off and did it for the third time and some more scales just fell off. And, but he still had all these scales. He's still a dragon. And then he heard the voice of the great lion Aslan. And Aslan says, you must let me undress you. And this is what it says. I was afraid, Eustace says, of his giant claws. But I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate by now, so I let him do it. And he said the first cut hurt, but it felt good. And Aslan ripped away the skin, and as he ripped away the skin, the little boy came forward. And, and, and Lewis is using incredibly beautiful imagery to say that Christ has to change us. That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, God, here's my sin. I'm desperate. You're glorious. I hate it. I run to you. That's what I'm about. But listen, church, it's difficult to repent in a culture that's a wash in the language of self-affirmation. There's a book by a guy named David Brooks. It's a very good book called The Road to Character. And he gives some startling statistics. He says that in Dwight Eisenhower's presidency, president eight years, he had 23 cabinet members. And after that eight years of presidency, uh, one cabinet member wrote a memoir, the Secretary of Agriculture, that was really pretty boring. It wasn't kiss and tell. It wasn't a self-adulation. Conversely, when Ronald Wilson Reagan was president for eight years, he had 30 cabinet members and 12 people wrote memoirs. Most of them were self-congratulatory memoirs about how wonderful they were. In high school, in 1950, a survey was taken of high school students. They said, what percentage of you say you are very, a very, very important person? In 1950, it was 12%. Fast forward to the year 2005. Same question was asked of high school graduates. Are you a very, very important person? What percentage said yes? 45. 45. Wrong. Low. 80. 80%. Maybe we're that much smarter than we were 50 years ago. I, I, I kind of doubt it. 
We live in this, this age of self-affirmation. Let me give you some examples. Ellen DeGeneres spoke at a 2009 commencement address, the comedian, and she said to the graduates, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be just fine, close quote. Just be true to yourself. I, really, I don't know what that means, really. Some of you watch the Food Network, Mario Batali, is that what you say, the Italian chef, said this recently at a gathering. He says, you are your own truth expressed consistently by you. I don't even know what that means. I mean, really, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not making... Anna Quinlan, the syndicated columnist, said a graduation exercise three years ago, I want you people to have the courage to honor your character and your intellect and your inclinations and, yes, your soul by listening to its clean, clear voice instead of following the muddied messages of a timid world. And there's some truth to that. I'm going, you listen to yourself. And then uh, the book Eat, Pray, Love uh, that was made into an absolutely horrible movie um, this is on page eight. Elizabeth Gilbert says this. You can show it. I can't get it to come up. All right. She says, God manifests himself through my own voice from within my own self. God dwells within you as you yourself are exactly the way you are. I mean, that, that's just... That's so far from the New Testament, so far from the truth of Christ. God manifests himself through my own voice from within my own self. Um, so, so, so I read the Bible, and the Bible causes me to have a, 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 a healthy dose of self-doubt about almost everything I do. Because I deal with sin. And, and, and we live in this culture, this self-congratulatory. I'm... There's a, there's a hymn, it's a simple hymn written by a woman named Annie Hawks that goes like this. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. Another stanza. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. See, that's the cry of a repenting man or woman. I need thee. I need, I need thee. God, I, I need you to, I, I need you this hour. I'm desperate. My name is Eustace Clarence Scrub. I must see my brokenness and my disjointedness and my need for the continuing empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Well, my daughter, who's precious to me, just when she was seven years old, she had a birthday party, and one of her friends gave her a disc, a musical disc, by um, Mary Kate and Ashley Olson. And they were, I, they were in a TV show, and they made some recordings about three or four years old with my daughter. And so this, this disc, uh, my daughter loved, and she would carry it with her, and she would give it to me when she got in the car. Daddy, play this. Well, what are you going? What are you going to do? Seven-year-old daughter, you go up anything, anything. So you play it, and the first week it was kind of fun, you know. Week two, I mean, by the end of the first month, I'm going, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm, I'm dying here. She played it all the time, and going to the second month, I thought, you know. I think about this now. If, if we caught some jihadists and we wanted them to tell us anything that, that, that we wanted, put them in a room and turn that tape on, reel to reel, time after, within 24 hours, 
Everything will come out. It was like torture. And, and so about two months into it, I snuck it out of the car and put it back on a bookshelf somewhere. She gets in the car next time, Dad, play that. I said, it's not here. Where is it? It's not here. I didn't lie to her. I didn't lie to her. And so she asked it four or five times, and she kind of forgot about it. We moved last year, and I was cleaning out all my books and reached back and felt something and pulled it out, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson. And I quickly threw it away because I started shuddering. I know the words to the song, the chief song, the, the cover song, I am the cute one. I, I know the words. They plague me. It goes like this. True story. Um, um, it's quite plain. I've got the brains. I've got the beauty. I am the cute one. She's just my sister. Let's think about it. I've got, it's quite plain. I've got the brains. I've got the beauty. I'm the cute one. She's just my sister. I've got, I've got the words down. Understand this. Either we go through life saying, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. Oh, bless me. Now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour because when you're nigh, when you're close by, temptations lose their power. Or we go through life saying, it's quite plain. I've got the brains. I've got the beauty. I'm the cute one. She's just my wife. I'm the cute one. They're just my kids. I'm the cute one. They're just the board of elders. See? You see? If you live with people who go around saying, I'm just getting in touch with the God or the goddess within me, I'm the cute one. That's a long life ahead. But if you live in a broken fashion before the Lord and you cry out, God, you give me your wisdom, it brings harmony and laughter and joy to your heart. And that's what I want for us. I want to remove anything that keeps me from crying out, and I, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so I want to talk to you this morning in just a few minutes about the trajectory of a life of a man named Josiah. Before I say that, let me say this. When I read the Old Testament, the New Testament, I look at the Old Testament, I'm saying, you know, the guys in the Old Testament repented, but they repented seeing the coming Messiah dimly. They said, God some way will come and fulfill the sacrificial system with Messiah King. It's dim. It's, it's dim. We see it coming. We rejoice in it, but it's dim. The book of Micah was written 100 years before the man we're going to study this morning. And in the book of Micah, God says, I'm going to judge my people, but a glorious day is coming when, when Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. He'll come. And he says in chapter 5, he says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And Micah says, about the year 700 B.C., that's going to happen. But we say, it's happened. He's our peace. He shepherds us in the strength of the Lord. He prays for us in heaven. He's poured out his Holy Spirit. He's given us the word of God. And so I, I say to you and I say to me, how much more full and glad and sober and laughter-filled should I, our repentance be than the Old Testament saints? Because we see the good stuff. Clearly, 
That's why this book by a guy named C. John Miller called Repentance in the 20th Century Man, he says, do not attempt to confess and forsake your old ways apart from the love of God manifested in a crucified Lord. Instead, look to the risen Savior who intercedes at the Father's right hand for you. And he says this. As, as the Spirit, or as, as the Spirit ex- exposes the evils of your heart, observe the wounds in Christ's hands. They are the absolute, unshakable promises of the Father, guaranteeing full access to the crushed in spirit. He says, you know, don't, don't, don't do a self-improvement plan. You run to the cross, and you glory in the cross, and the wounds in the body of Christ, and his blood poured out for you, his life given for you, is the guarantee that Abba Father is for you. So, so our repentance should be deep and strong and glad because God's way is good. So let's go to this book, 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Very quickly, bird's eye view. The guy named Josiah. Josiah has a grandfather named Manasseh who was king for 55 years. And probably 52 of those years were years filled with immorality and idol worshipers and idol building and bad stuff. And he repented late, late, late in his life, but already blown for five decades. Then his father came to power. His father was an evil, evil man who was taken out after two years. And so Josiah becomes king at the age of eight, and he is king for 31 years. Eight-year-old king. 18 years into his reign, he's 26, he's sitting on the throne, and he says, I want to refurbish the temple of God. So he sends some guys in the yard to clean it out and to bring stuff up and to pull up boards and to move. And and they pull up something and they find something wrapped in a, probably a leather skin. And it's it's the Bible. It's it's, it's the law of Moses. And and, and it's, it's been buried and unheard of. For 75 years, church, keep it 75 years, just stop. We're one generation away from biblical illiteracy. One generation. And that's why whenever I pray or when I speak, I say, listen, we must be multi-generational people. We've got to love the coming generations. We've got to love these children. We've got to teach them and labor and love and pray and fast and care for them especially as they live in a culture that in so many ways seems to be drifting further and further away from any biblical moorings whatsoever. Now, I, I love children. I, tell you, I like all types of children, but I go to VBS. You show me these little boys, you have to tell them 18 times to sit down and be quiet, and they just drive you crazy. I love those little boys because my son was like that. I was like that. And you, 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 you get the heart of these guys that are just full of energy, and they're going to make an impact for Jesus, like all kinds of kids. So, so that's what we're about. We're about multi-generational ministry. And I say that myself and to you guys, as we get older, our bodies are going to hurt and fall apart. Just, it's, they're going to. Don't be consumed with that. Because one day you get a new body in heaven and it's going to be some kind of incredible and it's going to be glorious. As we get older, let's not talk about our aches and pains. Let's talk about the next generation and let's talk about unreached people groups and let's talk about campuses where Jesus isn't known. Let's talk about places where the gospel needs to go and let's be saturated with the glory and goodness and power of God as we're saturated with the word of God. 75 years. 
And so they, they bring the, the, the book of the law out and they start reading it. And maybe they get to Deuteronomy 28 where God says, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. And if you do that, I'm going to have to judge you. And, 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 and Josiah, a godly king in age 26, here's what God is going to do when they do this. And he says, we've done all of this plus everything else. We are evil on steroids. And he, he, he rips his clothes and he falls to the ground. And he cries out, God, have mercy so the first step in the trajectory of repentance is that, that the truth reveals your need. And Josiah fell to the ground, church. He ripped his clothes. He's a 26-year-old stud of a king. Because the word of God convicted him. And, and, and I read that and I ask myself, when you, I ask you, when you read the Bible, there are times you go, oh, man. Man, the Holy Spirit is getting in my stuff right now. Yeah, I need to do that. See, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit. And it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You go, oh, man. has the word of God cut you? compelled you to see the filthiness of sin, the beauty of Jesus, and run to the Father? So that, that's, that, that's what he did. And, and, and what he did, he humbled himself. And see, Josiah shows us something that's throughout the Bible. And here's a little principle. Just think about it. The, the, the gaze and the blessing of God is attracted by humility, by those who are broken in spirit. The gaze and the power of God is attracted by humility. In 1 Peter, a New Testament book, Peter's dealing with an age-old problem. The young guys in the church were getting a little bit tenuous with some of the old guys in the church. And so Peter says this, verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. We're not sure if he's talking about the elder board or just the elderly people in the church. But either one. He says, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I read that and I say, am I quick to say I was wrong? Am I quick to say, do you forgive me? Because God's gaze and his blessing is attracted by humility. Do I, do I realize that my name is Eustace Clarence Scrub? Number two, very quickly, Josiah committed his way to a life of obedience. So I'm going to be obedient. Number three, he took measures. This is amazing. If I could go back in history, I think I would hang out with Josiah during 2 Kings chapter 23. It would be amazing to see. So let me, I'm just going to run through this real quickly. Here are the measures he took. Number one, it says that he, he goes to the temple and he brings out of the temple of the Lord. This is the temple dedicated to the worship of Jehovah God. He brings out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and the host of heaven. Asherah was a fertility goddess. So they had vessels in the temple dedicated to all these gods. Before the God who said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He, he took them out. 
And he took him to the fields of the Kidron, and he carried the ashes to Bethel. And then he got rid of the priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings to the high places at the cities of these false gods, to those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the, from the Asherah, from the house of the Lord. The Asherah was a, a pole or a place. It was a fertility pole. He brought it out and, and, and he burned it at the brook, brook of Kidron and he beat it to dust and he cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. And later it says he, he, he took these chariots that had been dedicated to the sun god and he burned the chariots. Now I'm a pragmatic guy and I'm thinking, why didn't he sell the chariots on eBay? Now why, why didn't he sell them? I mean, come on. Why, why, why burn them? Why, why pound this stuff to dust and then sprinkle it everywhere? Here's why. He didn't want that stuff in his life at all, ever again, ever see again, ever, 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 ever. That's a measure. He just got rid of it. Keep on going. And he wrote down the house of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Did you hear that? In the house of the living God were male cult prostitutes. For hire. When the word of God is buried, you slip. You slip. When you have ungodly leaders, you slip. Where the women wove hangings for Asherah, the fertility goddess. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and def who defiled the high places. And he got rid of them. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua. And, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. These, these people who claimed to be worshipers of Jehovah God kind of sort of took their kids out and they burned their children on altars to Molech. Child sacrifice. And I, and I remember being, I just thought of this, I remember being in in Tunisia, in Tunis, in Carthage. And they took us into this cave and they showed us all these little grave markings. And they said, we believe through excavation and historical research, that there are hundreds of them. These are the graves of children that the Romans in Carthage burnt as a worship to their God. Right here. See, when the word of God is buried... Things fall apart. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated. And he removed the altars from the top of the roofs that Ahaz had put there, which the kings of Judah had made altars. And Manasseh, his grandfather, had, had refurbished and ground them into dust. And he threw them and so forth. I mean, he took measures. And I read that and I thought, what measures do I need to take to be the man who can say, in my heart of hearts, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I think of, church, in this culture, how sometimes we inadvertently open doors without knowing it. Let me give you an example. A long time ago, I was in high school. A long time ago. And I had a, 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 a my English teacher, had her good friend, they were young, out of college. She had a good friend, there's a French teacher. Occasionally, they would bring their classes together, and we would watch a movie or do something. But a couple of times, they brought our classes together, and these two young women pulled out a Ouija board. Very popular back then. And they would say, Ouija, I'd say, ask him, ask him who I'm going to marry. Ouija, who's Buster going to marry? Ooh. Ask him how many football games he's going to win next year. I wish I'd asked that. We didn't have a good year my senior year. Ooh. We didn't ask any nefarious questions that were, that were scandalous. 
You know, when, when you do that, I fear you open the door to evil without even knowing you're doing it. So just be careful. I was visiting our son and his daughter and our grandson recently, Sarah and I were. We were babysitting. We went to this little city in Washington, beautiful city, and they were having a big children's fair, and they were having the apple bobbing contest and ride the little pony and the slide, and they had this silly musical show that was really cute. And It was outside. It was a beautiful day. And you walked around, and there in the corner was, let me read your palm and tell your future. And I went, ugh. And I thought, here in the midst of wholesomeness is something that I believe is incredibly evil where people can open the door without even realizing it. So I just say we should be people who take measures, who understand that our repentant life takes measures. Very quickly, number four, a repenting man honors those who love the Lord. 2 Kings 23, verse 17 um, says that he turned and he saw an altar that was there according to the word of God. The Lord, the man of God, proclaimed, predicted these things. He said, what is this monument for? And the men of the city said, this is the tomb of the man of God who came from God, who spoke the word of God and predicted these things that have been done against the altar at Bethel. And Josiah said, leave that monument alone. Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. In other words, these men spoke the word of God and they spoke the truth. We're going to honor them. And I, I just stepped away. I may be reading something here, but I believe a person who's repentant honors those who honor the Lord. Psalm 16 says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. My first year here, years ago, 33 years ago, young guys, kind, older congregation. The deacons would get together and pray before the service. And so they would they pray for me. I'm getting ready to go out. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just young. And they come in, and one of the guys said very excitedly, said, guess who's here? He says, Governor Edwards is here. And I'd been in Charleston just one year, but I knew kind of the favorite son was Governor Edwards. He was then the Secretary of Energy in the Reagan administration. And I'd heard wonderful things about him. And one of the guys said, well, are you going to recognize me? And I said, well, we'll talk about this later. But no, I'm not. And he said, okay. And, and later we talked, and I said, you know, I, I don't know what kind of guy Governor Edwards is. I, I found out he's a godly man and had a godly wife, godly kids, godly sisters, man. And, and a lot of his nephews and nieces and grandnephews and nieces are here. So wonderful. The Edwards family is great. I didn't know that then. So, I said, guys, what if we recognize him, but there's another woman sitting there who is a beautician from Kentucky who honors Jesus, and in God's kingdom, she's a four-star general. I said, you know, we need to be real careful about being too overly concerned and overly impressed with the world's standards when we're among God's people. I think a godly man loves the people who honor Christ. And the fifth thing, very quickly, a godly man worships. A repentant man worships. Listen to verse 21 and 23. This, this is unbelievable. And Josiah the king, 26 years of age, commanded all the people, keep the Passover of the Lord your God. They hadn't done the Passover. It's been 75 years since he observed the Passover. 
His great-granddaddy Hezekiah did it 80 years ago, but not since then. And that's the annual feast that's the supreme feast in the Jewish calendar. When the Word of God gets buried, things fall apart. Keep the Passover of the Lord your God as is written in the book of the covenant. Listen to this. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges. That Passover was so full with life and energy and worship and godliness that it was greater than the Passovers kept by David and Solomon. Now that's a repentant man. He gave them the word of God and the worship of God. And he said, walk in obedience. And he took measures and he honored those who honored the Lord. So I, I say to you, more about this next week. Live in such a way that you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May God make us repenting people to the glory of his name. I'm going to make an announcement and I'm going to pray. Um, the, the announcement is that we have a visitor's luncheon after church today down this hall. Free food for people that want to know more about our church. We, had, we bought 15 extra meals, so if you haven't signed up, come on in for a free lunch. If, even if you're not interested, come on in for a free lunch. You know, if, if free, free, food is, free is always a good word when it comes to food, I think. So that's happening today after our worship services. Thank you for your time and your energy and your attention. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And I thank you that we can open the Bible and learn from a king named Josiah who lived 650 or so years before Christ. And I thank you you took an eight-year-old and you matured him, and then you let a 26-year-old hear the word of God, and he tore his garments and fell to the floor and repented and took measures, and he honored those who honored you, and he gave the people of Judah the word of God and the worship of God. And Lord, I pray we be a repenting people. I need to repent daily. Uh, I pray you'd make us men and women who get rid of anything in our lives which keeps us from crying out with joy and abandonment and destiny. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So do that in us, Lord. Please speak to us, motivate us, move us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.